Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Exodus chapter 8. We'll be in the first 19 verses, Exodus chapter 8. reminded this morning of, of what we read in 2 Peter first, before we get to Exodus. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. If you think about it, God's divine power has granted us, has given to us as a gift His divine power has granted to us, what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. What is it that God hasn't given you? How has God been stingy towards you? He has not, dear brother and sister. He has given you everything, all things, that you need that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to what? To his own glory and excellence. That's why we go back to God's word time and time and time again. Because we believe that it leads us to this life and to this godliness. That it is a fountain that never runs dry. In fact, sometimes I discourage, I feel discouraged because I feel like we've only scratched the surface. There's so much. Shows God's handiwork. His word shows his handiwork. No human mind could have devised a word like this. A book like this. We amazed at God's word, amazed at what He says, amazed at what He has given to us. And so we come this morning and thank Him that He is not stingy with us today. That we can even read about the second and third plagues upon Egypt. And leave blessed by his word. 
So let's read. Hear what he would say to us. Would you stand with me? Out of reverence and respect for God's word. And after I finish reading verses 1 through 19 of chapter 8, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And together we will say, thanks be to God because we are truly thankful. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow... Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no, God, no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We pray all in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated.
I have to admit that what we are doing goes against human wisdom. Who would want to have sustained thinking about the judgment of God? Who would want to be confronted with the very wrath of God? Sure, we might be able to stomach it for a Sunday. Okay, Pastor, I could deal with God's judgment for one Sunday. But to linger on God's judgment, to study God's judgment, to hear about God's judgment week after week for a period of time, well, according to human wisdom, that's a good way to kill the church because nobody likes to hear about God's judgment. Who says, I just cannot wait to hear more about God's judgment? I cannot wait to learn more about God's judgment. Who would say such a thing? Do we find delight in people's pain? Are we gratified when people are hurt or destroyed? Do we glory in other people's deaths? No. God's judgment is a sobering thought. And it sobers us up to the present reality of the human condition. What is that condition? Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. Who are these ungodly and unrighteous people who suppress the truth? Well, Paul tells us later in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Do you remember the last three words? Not even one. Everyone begins in the state of the ungodly and the unrighteous. Everyone's fallen nature causes them to be those who suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about God, about who He is, about His eternal power, about His divine nature. And even though, Paul says, they know the truth, they suppress the truth, and they refuse to acknowledge it. Why do they refuse to even acknowledge the truth about God? Because if they acknowledge the truth about God, they would have to honor God and give Him thanks. People in the world are experts at suppressing the truth about God. And our world is entrenched in suppressing that truth. Why is that? Why, why is our world entrenched in suppressing the truth about God? Why do they fight against the truth about God? Why would they want to squelch it and squash it with every chance that they have? The reason why, I think, is very simple. People want what they want. People are ruled by their own lusts and their own desires. 
People are ruled by their need to receive honor and glory. People are dominated by wanting people to thank them for who they are, to thank them for what they have done. And so they suppress the truth about God by exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And people would rather prop up and promote a lie than acknowledge the truth about God. But when they exchange the truth about God for a lie, it's not merely that they are living by lies. It's not merely that they have been deceived into believing lies. No, it's much deeper than that. People will exchange the truth about God for a lie, and such an action shows what they worship. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They worship things that were created, things that are finite, things that are limited in power and in scope. They are worshiping things like themselves rather than worshiping the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Accepting the truth about God, acknowledging the truth about God, brings you to the very glory of God. But exchanging the truth for a lie makes you exchange the glory of God, the great transcendent glory of God, the glory that is unexplainable and unfathomable to our minds. It has exchanged God's great glory for things that have no glory at all whatsoever. Images of mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. These are what fallen man worships, and because of this, the wrath of God is revealed. This is why we cannot be vague when we talk about Christ. We have to talk about Christ in a clear and precise way. We just talk about a nebulous faith or a nebulous Savior that will not lead anyone to the truth about who God is. Christian beggary is a great danger to the church. When, when people become members of Grace Bible Fellowship, they are to give a testimony of their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because we want to hear that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We need to hear specific words. We need to hear specifics about who Christ is, about what he has done for them, about who they are now because they have put their faith and trust in him. So we must be specific about Jesus Christ. Because the wrath of God and the judgment of God is reserved for those who do not know Christ. I fear that some have done what Paul warns about in Romans 2. He says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is a warning that Pharaoh needed to hear. And it's a warning that many, many people today need to hear. God's forbearance, God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to bring you to Him. But what? Because of your hard, impenitent heart. That's the danger. People who remain in the hardness of their sin. They will not repent. They will not turn. They will not come to Christ. They will experience no conviction of sin And so they are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, when God's judgment comes upon unbelievers finally and fully, and it will, do you know what won't be said? This isn't fair. Because God's judgment is always righteous and just and true. As we contemplate and commit ourselves to sustain thinking about God's righteous judgment, we remember that God's judgment in this text, in Exodus 8, is upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. It it looks forward to the final judgment, when all will have to give an account before God. And so we are reminded that narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So we study this second and third plague as those who want to know the narrow way of God the way that leads us to Christ, the way that leads us to God himself. For God is the greatest gift of the gospel. You realize that's why God has given us the gospel, the good news, because he wants to give us of himself. And to think that as we come to these verses this morning, we want to know more about God, and that's exactly what these verses do. They teach us about God. And that we can learn about God from Him administering justice and judgment. We read these plagues not merely as historical facts. They are. But they are more. These plagues are recorded for us for a theological reason. For a redemptive reason. For a spiritual reason. We are to learn about God from these plagues. And these plagues are meant to make us focus on God. He is the one that we want to see clearly in the midst of these plagues. We could get distracted by the water turning to blood. We could get distracted by the frogs. We could get distracted by the gnats. But all of it is meant to hone us in onto who God is. And why it is that He does what He does to know about his righteousness and his judgment and his justice. So as we come to the second and third plagues, maybe we should be asking ourselves, 
what might we learn about God from these plagues? What might we learn about God? Two doctrines we learn about God. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. But first we learn that our God is, I'm going to use a big word here, but don't, I'm preparing you, I'm preparing you. Our God is incomparable. Incomparable. Our God is incomparable. Looks like incomparable. So if you're spelling it, think about that. Incomparable. It looks like that. Looks like incomparable, but we say incomparable. To say this another way, so we're breaking it down. I've used a big word, breaking it down. Our God is unmatched. He is unrivaled. He is beyond compare. He is superior to everything and everyone. And if we're honest, isn't this what we would expect from the true God? If there is a God, and there is, and He exists, and He does, and He is there, and He is, then we would expect a God who is incomparable. No one can match Him. He is greater than us. He is greater than anybody else. We would expect a God who, to put it in colloquial terms, blows our mind. The second plague begins with a warning, a warning to Pharaoh that comes from the Lord. This command is to let the people of Israel go. And Yahweh says, let my people go, says the Lord. Since they are his people, they are those who have been set apart to serve him. The Israelites were to serve no one else. They were to worship no one else. And this command attacked the pride and the ego of Pharaoh. He believed, Pharaoh believed, that they should serve him and worship him. Who is Yahweh to say that these are his people and that they should worship him? Him, they are my people, they should worship me. They are underneath my control, my dominion, my power, my kingdom, they serve me. But God's people only serve the Lord and no one else. Something in the world today wanting you to serve it other than the Lord. God's people serve God and God alone. Do you notice here, as we read, that the warning is relayed to Moses, but we're never given the account that Moses warned Pharaoh? The Lord said to Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say these things and do these things. But we never actually see Moses go and say those things. I think it's because the foregone conclusion is that Pharaoh will refuse. I mean, Moses is going to go and he is going to say these things to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is not going to listen. He's going to refuse. And so the consequences will come upon him. And what's the consequence? Well, the consequence here is frogs. These frogs will emerge from the Nile. And notice the language that it says here. Verse 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs. Or we could say it another way, 
team with frogs. T-E-E-M, team. If we're careful readers of the Bible, this word, swarm or team, will remind us of something that's already been said in the Bible. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. There it says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. At the beginning, God uses the word swarm to describe something good. The waters are swarming with swarms of living creature. But now, because of Pharaoh's sin and a hard heart, that which was once something that was good is turned into something now that is destructive. This swarm of frogs that will come upon the land of Egypt. And these frogs are a personal invasion into the life of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, these frogs are going to go into your house. They're going to go into your bedroom. They are going to go into your bed. Imagine pulling back your sheets tonight and your bed being filled with frogs. Not only that, they go into the places where they're preparing food. How great and expansive, extensive is this plague? Look at verse 4. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and all your servants. The description is a vivid picture of frogs that are creeping and crawling on their very persons. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want that. And I know my wife would not want that. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, unable to escape the frogs, and they are swarming all over him. And so Aaron obeys the command to bring up these frogs. He stretches out his staff over the waters, and up come the frogs. And they covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt were able to do the same thing. They were able to bring up frogs as well through their secret arts, through their practice of the occult, through demonic powers, they also were able to conjure up frogs. But again, notice, what are they able to do? They're only able to intensify the judgment. We've got frogs. We don't need more frogs. We need the frogs to go away. And the situation becomes desperate. So desperate that Pharaoh calls out to Moses and Aaron saying, plead, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. It was so desperate that he promised to let Israel go. I will let them go and sacrifice. What does Pharaoh want? He wants a prayer to be made on his behalf for Yahweh to relent and stay his hand. And so then Moses does something that we might think is out of place. He gives Pharaoh the advantage. He gives Pharaoh the upper hand, so to speak, in the struggle. What does Moses say? He says this, and I'm paraphrasing. I trust my God so much that I will let you choose Pharaoh when the plague ends. The idea here is that Moses is even saying, I'm going to show you honor. Honor. 
And by showing you honor, I'm going to let you choose when it ends. So you tell me, Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh say? Tomorrow. What? Why would you wait, Pharaoh? Why would you, why would you say, now, today, I got a problem. I got these frogs. They're all over the place. Let's get rid of them right now. Maybe that would be expected. But if another time in the future, the near future, was chosen, it would prove that this was not an illusion or a trick. It would, in fact, demonstrate just how great Yahweh truly is. And so Moses says, be it according to your word, Pharaoh. For this is the reason and the purpose that this is going to happen. So that you know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. There it is. This all will happen to show that the Lord, our God, is incomparable. There is no one like him. He is not like any pagan God. He is not like any man. He is not made up in man's mind. He is completely other than creation. He is completely over creation. He is the divine creator who made all things by the word of his power. And so we have nothing and no one that we can hold up and say, see, this is like the Lord. No, there is no adequate comparison that can be made to him. He is wholly independent, absolutely perfect, unchangeable, eternal, infinite, incomprehensible, holy, wise, all knowledgeable, faithful, merciful, gracious, loving, good, sovereign, transcendent, and everywhere present. And he is all of these perfectly at the same time. And we haven't even talked about his work or his word yet, which continues to pile onto the evidence that our God is incomparable. Is this the God that you know? How do you know if you know this God? If you know the incomparableness of God, first it will lead to complete humility. Squashes all of our pride. All the ways that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are more important than we really are. Who are we in the presence of the incomparable God? While it stirs humility in our hearts, it also leads us to true worship. If God is incomparable, who else is there? What else is there? There is no one, there is nothing else to worship. He alone is the one who is worthy of our worship. And so God's incomparableness kills our idols. Isn't that what idols are? False comparisons of an incomparable God. We realize that there is no one else that we can give our worship to. No one else we'd want to give our worship to. It also has a sanctifying effect on those who live for him. It has a sanctifying effect. If you know this 
incomparable God, you would devote yourself to Him with all that you are. And say, my life is to be lived for you. And so then what? I will lay aside every weight of sin that would cling onto me, that would try to weigh me down as I run the race of endurance that is set before us. Why would we do such a thing? Why would that sanctifying effect take place? Because we're looking to Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who is the exact imprint of the incomparable God. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what this incomparable God looks like? You look to Jesus Christ. And then you know. And you live your life for Him, and you're sanctified by Him. Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And what happens? The frogs died out. The incomparable God stayed his hand and gave relief and respite. And how many frogs were there that died? What a picture. So many that they had heap after heap after heap after heap. It's this idea that there were countless heaps of dead frogs that they gathered together. And it's no wonder, is it, what it says next? And the land stank. (laughs) Rotten, decaying frogs everywhere you better believe it would stink. The Hebrews, who had just a few chapters earlier in chapter 5, the Hebrews had worried that they had become a stench to Pharaoh. Now saw that the land of Egypt itself stank before the Lord God. Did any of this change Pharaoh? No, he hardened his own heart. He was willing to go against his word. And so when the plague was out of sight, the promise that he made was out of mind. He would not listen. So why frogs? Why this form of judgment? The frogs point us forward to the end of the Bible, to final judgment. So If you have your Bibles, keep your finger there in Exodus 8 and turn all the way to Revelation 16. Revelation 16. If you were to do a word study on frogs in the Bible, every time the word frogs is used, it is always referring to the Exodus plague. It's not used that many times. It wouldn't take you that long. So then I think it's very interesting what we read in Revelation because it brings back into our memory the plague of the frogs in Exodus. So, Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14. 
And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like what? Like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Here these frogs represent unclean, demonic, deceptive spirits. And such deception was like a plague of pestilence Except this pestilence was not just over the land of Egypt. This pestilence was going to spread over the whole globe. So you have this unholy trinity. You have the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and these spirits like frogs coming out of their mouths. And there is like this plague that's over the whole world. And who is it affecting? It's affecting the kings of the whole world. Just like Pharaoh was not exempt from the frogs in his bed. And so these unclear, unclean spirits affect these kings of the whole world and it readies them for battle. It assembles them to fight against the Lord and against His people. And it appears that the unclean spirits, depicted as frogs, have won. They have deceived the kings so much so that they believe that they will be able to exterminate all of the saints. They're going to fight this battle, and they're going to exterminate all of God's people. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But what happens? They are not victorious. They are decisively conquered by the incomparable Christ. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. What is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who is victorious over everything that is unclean, over all of the unclean spirits that have deceived the world, who think that they will win, who think that they will be victorious, Jesus Christ wins. Why? Because he is the incomparable Christ. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the incomparable God does. Number two, our God is omnipotent. Our God is omnipotent. Another big word, omnipotent. To say that God is omnipotent is to say He is almighty or all-powerful 
and there is nowhere that he is not powerful. We come back to Exodus 8. This is the shortest account of all of the plagues, the shortest plague that we have recorded. And it's the last plague in this cycle. Remember last week, I talked about that these plagues come in three cycles of three, and then it's culminated with the tenth plague. So this is the last plague of the first cycle. So one, two, three is one cycle. So here is this last plague, and it stands out what sometimes we refer to as a zone of turbulence. There are some similarities between plague one and plague two. There are some differences in plague three. Differences that should make us sit up and think. Differences that we should take note of. Like if you're flying on an airplane and you hit turbulence, usually you're like, whoa, sit up and notice a little bit, right? And so maybe we sit up and take notice of what we read here. And one of the first things that we see is that this plague comes without any warning whatsoever. The other two plagues, go and warn Pharaoh, tell him what's coming. Here, just going to happen. There's no going to Pharaoh beforehand. God's judgment is simply going to fall upon the land of Egypt as Pharaoh has persisted and remained in his sin. And notice with this plague as well, there is no explicit mention that it comes to an end. Like the water to blood lasted seven full days. The frogs died out. There's no explicit mention here with this plague that it comes to an end. Yahweh commanded the action of Moses to talk to Aaron. Aaron was to obey the Lord's command to stretch out his staff over the dust of the earth to strike the dust of the earth. And then what would happen? Gnats would be formed from the dust of the ground. And these gnats would come upon both man and beast. We move from these first two plagues having to do with water. And now this third plague, we move to the land, to the dust of the earth. And this phrase, dust of the earth, you see it repeated here uh, three times in just two verses, verses 16 and 17. Why is it repeated? Why do you hear dust of the earth over and over and over again? Well, it, it has a refrain in the Bible that comes to us again and again. We see it the very first time in Genesis 3.19. Genesis 3.19 says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We even hear this thought expressed in the Book of Common Prayer in its burial service when the minister is directed to say this, We therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. The dust of the earth represents death. Why is this phrase then repeated here in Exodus? 
to remind the Egyptians of the impending death that they were facing. It is a reminder that the wages of sin is death. And the gnats coming from the dust of the earth are a sign of human morality. You are going to die. This is your end. It made me think of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you look there with me for one moment, Ecclesiastes 3. If you're looking for it, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 18 through 20. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them to, that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. And so the Egyptians are confronted with their morality. They are going to die. And notice how I think there's this connection between it comes upon man and beasts. Why? Because they're all going to die. They're all going to go back to dust. It's reminding men, you think that you're better? You think that you're more special? You will be dust just like the beasts will be dust. You will decay the same way. It's a reality that they are unable to get rid of. They cannot escape it. And just as the gnats are upon them, in a very physical and real sense, so they cannot escape their morality. We also see another difference with this third plague in the response of the magicians. In the first two plagues, and in the changing of the staff into a dragon, they are able to duplicate it, but not with this plague. The way that this is written mimics the first two plagues. It leads us to think that maybe the magicians will be able to replicate this as well. But then comes these very powerful words that we read, but they could not. They could not reproduce it. And the gnats remained on man and beast. And so what did the magicians do? They turned to Pharaoh to make a confession. And they say, this is the finger of God. Had the magicians been converted? No, this is not a full recognition of Yahweh, the Lord. They use a generic term for God. But they are recognizing that this God is powerful. There is a description of God they use, that's called, here's another big word for us, we'll unpack it, an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism. Try saying that five times fast. They say the finger of God. What do they do? They take something that we know as human beings, a body part, and they attribute it to God, that God would have a finger. God does not have fingers. What is God? God is a spirit and has no body like we do. So why a finger? To help us understand 
in our finite minds who this God is and how this God acts. Finger can be used to show the precise and direct orchestration of this event. So the finger of God shows his sovereign control in this plague. This God, it's his finger, and so he's showing his sovereignty. He's showing his control. He can orchestrate even the minute, tiny gnats that come out of the dust. He has power and control over them and where they go and who they land on and where they are. could also be used as a contrast. The finger is a small body, body part, yet it's used to do great and powerful actions. Such a small finger, yet such a mighty and all-powerful God. Yahweh's power is no match for the Egyptians. It's no match for Pharaoh. It's no match for all of the false gods that, Egypt, that the Egyptians worshipped. This is the omnipotent God whose power cannot be stopped and cannot be tamed and cannot be faked and cannot be manipulated in any way whatsoever. It didn't matter to Pharaoh. His heart was still hardened. Part of me thinks it didn't matter if the magicians did it. It didn't matter if the magicians didn't do it. Pharaoh was going to remain hard in his heart. The power of God did not soften Pharaoh's heart. And oh, how many, many people will not be softened by the power of God. How powerful is God? He's powerful enough to raise people from the dead. They don't want that, though, because they don't want God's eternal power. Do you live like God is omnipotent? Or do you ever say something like this? I know God is all-powerful, but, no, no but. God may not work the way that you want. God may not use his power the way that you want, in your timing, in your way, according to what you think is best or right. But God is all-powerful all the time, in every situation, in everything. We as his people should live like he is all-powerful. And we should tell other people that he is all-powerful. We should tell them that he is so powerful that he raises people from the dead. Do you know what it is to recognize the finger of God? You are able if you know Jesus Christ. How powerful 
is the finger of God. So powerful that in Exodus 31, 18, we are told that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. How powerful is God? God is so powerful that in Psalm 8, 3, we are told that with his finger, he created the heavens. How powerful is the finger of God? Go back to Luke eleven twenty. 20. Craig read for us today. These leaders of Israel were accusing Jesus, thinking that he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But he says this in verse 20, but if it is by what? The finger of God that I cast out demons. And I think Jesus is saying, and it is. If it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and it is, it's the finger of God that I'm able to speak to these unclean demons and they flee and they fly away because of my presence and my word. If it's because of the finger of God that is upon me and in me and working through me that I cast out demons, then what? Then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if you want to recognize the finger of God, you have to know Jesus Christ and his work and his ministry and what he has done and the fact that he is the king who ushers in the kingdom. And that this kingdom is a powerful kingdom. It's a kingdom that cannot be overthrown. It cannot be overtaken It's a kingdom that, that is certain and secure. A kingdom that is clean and holy. A kingdom that is just and right and true. A kingdom where there is no complaining, <laughs> but a kingdom where there is always and forever God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to your word and learn about you, the fact that you are incomparable, the fact that you are omnipotent, the fact that your power is so great, so awesome, that no one can overthrow it, no one can overcome it, no one can thwart it. And so I pray, Father, that we as your people would be those who are living in this kingdom, who know this kingdom, who proclaim this kingdom. And Father, I pray if there is someone here today who does not know that you are incomparable, who does not know that you are all-powerful, who does not know that Christ is the image of the invisible God and that he is the one who demonstrates and shows your power and that he is the one who 
It shows that fully and finally through his death on a cross and through his resurrection. That it's there. That sin is conquered. Satan is conquered. That death and the grave are conquered. And we're all those now who put their faith and trust in this Christ will no longer be under the wrath of God, will no longer seek to suppress the truth, but will have the light of life. Father, we pray that you would work in lives here today, and that if anyone does not know Christ, that today would be the day when they put their faith and trust in Him. Come to Him as poor and sinning eaters, as poor, as poor and needy sinners, that they might find rest, joy, and satisfaction for their soul. May all of our hearts know that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.